0: I said it before and I'll say it again.
1: That scene, that last scene.
2: What does it mean?
1: I'm the dude, you know? Get the fuck out of here.
2: No, I cannot. That final scene starts now.
0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to that final scene. My name is Sophie and I'll be your host for the next, hopefully, less than an hour or so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if the recording goes smoothly. If the
0: recording goes smoothly. Well, we're trying a new format, so. Yeah,
2: another we'll see. one. We did that last week.
0: Well, they're two different formats. Well, we're trying to cut Simon up. Yeah. Mm,
2: Trying to shake things up a little here.
0: Yep, exactly. So, this episode is our final scene episode. We just wanted to do a proper deep dive because we thought sometimes we didn't get the chance to do that in the previous episodes.
2: Yeah. We used to take like 20 minutes and feel like we were rushing through those final scenes, but now we can actually give it a bit more time and, yeah.
0: Do some more research yeah people.
2: exactly bring more clips yes make it more of an audio experience <laughs> and i don't care so if, if he's brought an audio experience with yeah. it. oh yeah <laughs> it's uh yeah it's uh yeah all the clips we could have had and all the films we could have picked this is a good one
0: it's one of those clips that have a very different context when you don't have the scene in front of you
2: yes I was So I was saying this to you guys before, but like I've been listening to a, another podcast called James Bonding, mm. which is fantastic if you like Bond movies. And they were playing the final scene of Die Another Day. And the scene itself is Pierce Brosnan and Halle Berry, assumedly post-intercourse, covered in diamonds. <laughs> and she has like diamonds in her belly button. Mm. And he's like taking them out and she's like, no, leave it in. And he's like, we have to go. He's like, you get just a little bit more time. Leave it in. <laughs> oh, and without seeing that and just listening to it, it is one of the most uncomfortable things. You, it's it's such a, like, the dialogue by itself without the visual is like skin crawling. It's so bad. I would, I mean, I recommend everyone to listen to that podcast because it's great and James Bond's amazing. But this is the episode as well where we are now going to try something even, even newer than obviously just this new format is our... Desert Island DVDs is kind of what we're calling it now, but also that name can be changed. We are <laughs> yeah. open to suggestions. We'll also be thinking of a name. But basically, this was something that we thought about while we were taking a bit of a break and something that we wanted to try different where, well, today, at least, <laughs> Simon, Sophie, and I are going to pitch three films that are going to be put out and brought with us to the that final scene, Desert Island. And then every week, two of us will have to basically battle it out royal rumble style to keep aye, aye, to aye. enter a new film aye. and uh and and have whoever has as many films on the island that week is the winner and that will be chosen by anybody listening we'll put it out to you guys to vote after we've made our pitches
0: that is so So exciting. you're going to
2: hear us having some really intense arguments hopefully in the future on this podcast so if you like some drama and get ready
0: to set some ground rules or maybe like the number one rule mm-hmm. and the only rule the concept is these are the films you would take on a desert island with you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not the best films of all time, yeah, 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 right? No. So I think we need to make that clear. It's ours.
1: Well, I yeah. I made a list of categories that we could judge them by. Interesting. Interesting. And the ones I was going on were, and this is just nine that off the top of my head. Ori- what? Originality. Okay. Risk taking. Okay. Wig work. Excellent. Cross dressing. <laughs> <laughs> Emotional drama. It's
0: getting very specific.
1: Creativity slash absurdity, cultural impact, comedy value, tension.
0: I can't believe you can prepare a time what the hell?
1: Well, I thought because we were talking about top drums. like how yeah. would we if if these films were all in a deck of cards, what would be the thing would that they we would do? use to kick the other ones out? Yeah, and what would be their right. speciality? Yeah,
0: it just feels like there's a lot going on.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think we can we can solidify we can it a bit. It, yeah, yeah, for
0: sure. But I love the. I'd like, love. That we have some rules to, yeah, yeah go So go I guess,
2: Sophie, do you want to kick us off? Do you want to give us, do you want to enter your three, enter your plea?
0: Okay, so I'm going to go with my basic bitch. Love
2: uh, it. I hate that term I, so much. I know you hate that term. I can't wait for
0: no, this, No, no, it's it gender neutral. Like, it could be your basic bitch film as well, yeah. right? Because okay. it's so basic, but it's actually so good. I'm going to go with Fight Club.
1: Okay. Because okay. it
0: has to be there. It's the film that I've re-watched the most in my life. Okay. 27 times, to be precise. Wow. How I, You keep track. Yeah. I mean, I think probably 20 of them came when I was 20 to 22. I just, re- <laughs> yeah. I just <laughs> probably re it like every other week or something for a very long time. It. It's my favorite Fincher film. I think it has everything. If we go to, you know, go back to your list, Simon, I think it probably ticks every box. Comedic vibe aside, I'm, I'm not sold on that.
2: But- This guy has its moments.
0: It has its moments. Yeah. Dark, Mar- Marla Singer, comic. Marla Singer, for sure. Mm. And it has everything. A cultural impact. It has, it's so quotable. I think it's a film, and the reason I put it in, you know, in my list is because I feel like it's very misunderstood. I think people have taken it for- a pro-insult kind of, you know, mental like mindset and mentality. And I don't think that's the case. I think Fincher was trying to prove the opposite. Mm-hmm. And then you have Brad Pitt and he's hottest film ever. Like, what? what yeah, you can't. He's, he's like, ripped. Tyler Durden has like, picked and just, yeah, you can't unsee the Tyler Durden.
2: I mean, there's I something now. to be said for the fact that you don't talk about Fight Club and you're talking about it on a podcast that's going to be listened to by a lot of people. But hey, you know, I'm sure Fincher would have wanted it that way.
0: That is true. I probably should have said the film that must film not that be no named. One talks about,
2: yeah. <laughs> but everyone think you were talking about Macbeth. Ugh.
0: Yeah. So yeah, that's number one for me.
1: Okay. So number one, my number one is the Death of Stalin. Okay. It's nice. an Armando Iannucci film. He wrote and directed it, and it hits my nine criteria I think really well because it's like a black political satire of when Stalin dies in Russia. Um and it was made in 2017, so it's the most modern of my three choices. Because I've picked th- three films through the years. Good. So okay. w- one of them starts off in the 70s, one of them's like 90s, and one of them's 2017. and one's mm. quite modern. It's absurd at times, it's completely mad. It's I think it's very original because of that. And particularly original because it's like northern English people playing Russians, it's mm. hilarious. Mm-hmm. So you've got these northern English accents. Uh, And and other accents as well, playing these Russian... It's an entirely
2: kind of English cast, isn't it? Yeah, it's just,
1: it just it's completely mad. Um, It's very, very funny. Um, And I think it's banned in Russia.
2: Because, uh,
1: you know, it's like anti-USSR or whatever. Oh, wow. Mm. So there's a political statement there as well. So there's some cultural impact. Mm. And yeah, a bit of risk taking. It's got Michael Palin in. He's one of my heroes from Monty Python. Mm. Because I would have almost picked Life of Brian if I couldn't have picked this one which is a similar sort of absurd, yeah, anti-establishment, controversial type film. And there's a, there's a scene that always makes me smile. <laughs> there's a northern actor called um, Jason Isaacs. Oh yeah, of Jason course. Isaacs yeah, is amazing. Yeah, loads of stuff. Grainy yeah. northern accent. We, is, we his love voice Jason. is insane. Very threatening. Well, He's got the, that like dark smoldering look. There's a scene where he enters this like uh, grand stateroom in the film and uh, it's all in slow motion and he has this jacket on he's like head of the army or something and he has all these medals like dripping off uh, the jacket and and this is what he says when he walks in
2: right what's a war hero got to do got some lubrication around here (laughs)
0: Jesus
1: and it's amazing it's so brilliantly timed it's really like confident and it's all in slow motion as he takes his jacket off and it's just just, what what I imagine a Russian general would be doing Uh nice Except without the little accent. <laughs> nice, good pick.
2: Oh, okay, Best it's a good favorites. show. Yeah, and I think uh, I mean it's good to have an Ianucci one in there, considering the the mark he's left on yeah. British comedy. If you haven't watched any Armando Ianucci stuff, I mean, get out and watch it. If if mm-hmm. if not, just for that sketch he did of the man who's terrified of the. Uh, bigger boys kicking a football at him mm-hmm. because he'll oh, have yeah. to kick it back, which is just that's incredible. In, that
1: was in a, a series he did called The Armando Winucci Shows, yeah. which is which excellent.
2: then leads on to that episode of The IT Crowd where Moss learns to talk like a man. It's basically yes. like the inspiration for it. So my first one, I'll go for a comedy as well. I mentioned it on the last episode. Uh, and I mean, part of me wanted to do it just to bring a clip of it, but also because I think it's possibly one of the funniest films yeah. ever made is Aww. What We Do in the Shadows. I mean, I love it because... It feels like it's everything a mockumentary should be in that it kind of feels a little bit low rent. It feels low budget because it probably was. And yet it's cast to perfection. It's incredibly funny. And it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's shot for shot almost perfect, yeah.
0: Tonight we are going out into Wellington Central. It is important that we look good.
2: Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, like One of the unfortunate things
0: about not having a reflection is that you... Mm don't know exactly what you look like.
2: Ooh. And it plays on like cool vampire tropes, like you know. A ghost cap floating all by itself.
0: We can give each other feedback and help each other out until we're looking great. Yeah, some of our clothes are yeah. from victims. You might bite someone and then you think, ooh, those are
2: some nice pants. Do with no. these. Change it. When you're a vampire, you become very sexy. Because vampires don't have reflections. So they have all these cartoon sketches of one another to see what they look like going out in their outfits. To us.
0: Not sure about the waistcoat. I go for a look which I call dead but delicious. We are the bait,
2: but we are also the trap. Hello, ladies. <laughs> I mean, you just can't. I don't know. If, I don't know. If, I don't know if you can beat it. I just think it's it's good. It's just that perfect mix camp. of camp. Like, yeah, it's incredibly camp. It's incredibly camp, but I mean, Jermaine Clements is, and it's
1: understated. I think as well.
2: Yeah, for sure. And uh, I mean, the clip I could have included one of the clips that I love, but I didn't. Is the is the werewolves one,
1: mm. which
2: I, which I find amazing. The werewolves, not swearwolves. You know, it's just yeah, it's so incredibly funny. And I think it's endlessly watchable. I think that's the reason to have it on this list is because I could watch it ten times in a week and probably still find something to laugh at. Every Very time. watchable. Yeah, that's my first one.
0: Right. Second one for me. Second time round. We're going back in time, 1968, I want to say. 2001, Space Odyssey. Ah. Kubrick.
1: Oh, yeah. We're
0: going with the best film of all time. That is 2001, Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. I picked this one mostly because of what is happening in the world right now with AI and all the conversation around the thing. It's incredibly prescient, prescient that film. And obviously has been referenced so many times in so many films. It has the best villain of all time, half 3000, And it's just this, um, for me personally, was the first film that I saw, maybe Inception aside, that makes me weird about mentioning, comparing Inception to 2001. It's, It's the film that I saw when I was probably, 13 or 14 that when I saw it and I remember like I was in my like tiny bedroom in Greece like and I saw it on my laptop and I was like wait you can do that in front of a (laughs) camera as in like it really opened my eyes in terms of what's possible in you know in the cinematic language so yeah really proud of that pick. I don't know if you guys have you guys seen it I haven't seen it. You should. I've
2: never seen it, yeah. I I mean, it's one of the, I feel guilty for not having seen it and I feel like people listening to this will be like, how the fuck? Because I know Arthur C. C. Clarke was
1: (laughs) regularly consulted on like space exploration type matters, wasn't he? Because he he sort of became an authority on like what's going on around Mm -hmm. the universe, didn't Mm -hmm. he? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is mad how like, yeah, like someone pumping out culture stuff can become like a technical consultant on what's going on. (laughs)
0: I mean, I think, well, you both like sci-fi, like great sci-fi yeah. films. So I think this is right up your alley and you, you will really enjoy the, the villain. You will really appreciate how incredibly eye-opening it is in terms of how Kubrick understood AI back in the day. Mm. And space exploration, human nature, like it's compelling. And I mean,
2: it's one of those things that's referenced in so many. Exactly. I, I think my first interaction with it even... I mean, outside of the film itself is there's an episode of Futurama about it where <laughs> Bender falls in love with the spaceship and they even have the similar thing. And then there's also a Simpsons episode where they get like a HAL 3000 for the house that Pierce Brosnan is the voice of. And I think Matthew Perry, who just passed mm-hmm. away, is one of the voices of it as well. Mm-hmm. And they fall in love with the house and the house tries to kill them and stuff. So Aww. it's constantly like, I mean, HAL 3000 2001 is kind of constantly referenced. And the music as well, right? Oh. Isn't that the... yeah. Is it dun, the start of Barbie?
0: Dun, 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 dun. That's Planet of the Apes. That's Planet of the Apes. But yeah very, simil- like, yeah, very similar in terms of yeah. Yeah, impact. Mm. Simon, your second one? Number
1: two. You guys have got to guess it. Okay, I'm going to give you the cast. Oh, I love it. fire. No. Nope.
2: Oh my God, it if you've gotten it on the first, got Nuns on the Run.
1: Nope. Ah. No, no, no. I'm going to give you some clues. Okay. Okay. Monty Python. First clue, Tim Curry. Uh,
2: oh, Rocky Horror. Rocky yeah.
1: H-
0: that's Sorry. so interesting, really.
2: I, yeah, you're wearing the hoodie today, exactly. Right? That
0: is, that is clue amazing.
2: Is <laughs> Was one of the clues going to be I'm wearing it now, right now? <laughs>
1: yeah, without sounding creepy, like
0: yeah. like uh-huh.
1: how um, how Richard O'Brien actually is in the film, quite creepy. <laughs> in a it's nice way. you're wearing
2: fishnets under those trousers.
1: Yeah, so I picked th- this 1975. Um, here's a flavour. In- good okay originality 10 out of 10 risk-taking 10 out of 10 wig work 10 out of 10 cross-dressing 10 out of 10 emotional drama 10 out of 10 absurdity 10, and, so on, and so on and so on i mean it's like this list is just based for rocky horror yeah, exactly I, i'm i, aware that I that. made the list around my own films so obviously we'll have to adjust <laughs> yeah. i thought of
0: that that's a pretty it's good, a good pick. shout
2: though. Yeah. rocky horror is one of those ones where you know when they send uh like uh they'll send satellites out into the galaxy with like a plate on it with binary <laughs> stuff and there'll be like music and ins- you know yeah, inscribed yeah, yeah in it if you want to like show you know a part of humanity that is just absolutely bizarre and absurd send them rock send rocky yeah. horror out into space and so, we'll let the aliens watch it
1: culturally dead important you know it showed yeah. uh, gender bending um it's okay to be a freaky weird person that doesn't fit in um pushing the boundaries on like normalizing different sexualities
2: um, I mean, it's telling that you. The Church
1: probably hated it. Yeah, <laughs> it got but it's banned. telling
2: that you'll probably you'll find a lot of cinemas. Pretty much in every, you'll probably find at least one or two cinemas in every country around the world that yeah. has a rocky horror night every now and again. Yeah, yeah. Because people just love it and they sell it out, and people come dressed as the character. Like it's a film that like deeply resonates with a lot of people.
1: Yeah, um, the songs are also excellent. Uh, yeah. There's meatloaf's in it, and I was going to say think the time warps probably. A song that's—I mean, people, kids like t- played, the time. What now? Is time is
2: playing it at every Irish wedding I have ever been to. Yeah. <laughs> Won't be played at mine, but at most. Irish and the weddings.
1: songs also contribute to the narrative flow of the film. They're not just like shoehorned in. It's like a big part of the actual storytelling.
2: Yeah, I mean, my second one—I couldn't go to the desert island without a Bond film, <laughs> of course. Um, and it leads into my third one, but we'll get to that later. But I'm—it uh, has to be Casino Royale. So it was the. Not the first I saw in the cinema, it was the second. Obviously, I saw Dino the day in the cinema. Um, And it, as someone who had grown up with the films, Daniel Craig is my Bond. Like, he's the one that I've seen all the films of. And in a time when Bond was being completely, like, surpassed and outdated by the Bourne films, they reinvented it in a way that made it, like, cool and relevant and, like, a lot grittier than it ever had been before. You know,
1: it's probably what um, License to Kill did in the 80s. Perhaps. Yeah, well, this I think did, and even to, even,
2: even to a better extent. Mm. And I think like Craig kind of defined himself as Bond there, whether he, I mean, whether he will have liked doing that or not. But again, I mean, the action sequences in it are incredible. Like that opening, the fact that it opens in black and white, mm. you're like, oh my God, what the, this is. And then there's that ama- the fight scene in the bathroom leads into the chase scene through, like, the construction site. There's the amazing, like, car flip and You're stuff. making me want to watch it. it d- dude, it's, I've re-watched it recently, and I did a double bill with it in Quantum of Solace, and I actually brought a Quantum clip. Quantum
1: of Solace. Quantum's
2: not going in the desert island with me. But if you want to watch Quantum of Solace and really appreciate it, you need to watch the two films back-to-back. Because they are, it's the first time they ever did, like, a direct sequel with, like, you know, Quantum starts like 10 minutes supposedly after Casino finishes. And they're a perfect little pair together. And it's just, yeah. I mean, I I can't think of anything wrong with it. It's my favorite Bond film. He's my favorite Bond. I just love all of it. I think it's so good. And it gave him like an emotional edge, which he'd never really had before. Obviously in, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, you know, they did his marriage and stuff like that but his relationship with vesper was just something else i thought it was incredible and yeah it's one of those films that having re-watched it again recently i sit there with a smile on my face from the mi- from the minute it starts you see the outside of that building in prague in black and white the minute it starts i'm like i'm in you really don't know anything this is about from quantum <laughs> so good this is mr white from the end of casino It's so amusing, because we are on the other side, thinking, oh, the MI6, the CIA, they're looking over our shoulders, they're listening to our conversations, and the truth is, you don't even know we exist.
1: Well, we do now, Mr. White. And we're quick learners.
2: (laughs) Oh, really? Well, the, the first thing you should know about us is that we have people everywhere. Am I right? Bang. So good. And actually, that leads on to another scene later in the film, which Judy Dench delivers possibly the greatest line of all time when she says, uh, She's like, when people say we have people everywhere, it's normally hyperbole. They don't mean it. I mean, florists say we have people everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so good. It's so brilliant.
1: Bringing it back down to earth. Yeah. Amazing. It's, oh, fantastic. Wonderful. And I mean,
2: that's another thing that Casino has. Judy Amazing Dench line. is incredible as M. But yeah. 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 Casino is coming with me. That's movie number two.
1: It's
0: definitely the, same, the best Bond film.
2: For sure. Hands down.
0: For sure. Yeah. Uh, Okay, number three for me, Parasite.
1: Oh, okay, cool.
0: Parasite. Uh, I just wanted to pick a modern one just because it's…
1: Nice relaxing one. Mm.
2: Something chill that we're all baking in the sunlight on the desert island wondering where the water's (laughs) coming from next. This
1: is good for the tension, Top Trump. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's 10 out of 10.
0: Yeah, but I also think it's, in a weird way, it's very satirical. Like, it has heavy black humor vibes, especially the first. Um, the the first two acts are very satirical, and then you get the pff, yeah whatever. Like, I don't want to spoil it for people. If in case you haven't seen Parasite for whatever reason, but the reason I picked it is because I feel like besides the fact that it's super rich in social critique storytelling and um, all of those things, it really paved the way for a wave of films in so many different ways that wouldn't have come otherwise. So firstly, from an international film standpoint, the fact that, you know, it got so much traction, I feel like this is the reason we're now seeing Korean and generally Asian films in cinema in a way that we haven't seen before and you're getting so much mainstream traction and, you know, you it's okay to watch a film with subtitles right now, even though it was such a taboo and it was like eye-rolling their eyes. Oh, do I have to really turn on the subtitles? I feel like Bong know who really normalized that. And then from a thematical standpoint, I do think in a way it started the whole, not tax the rich <laughs> Uh, messaging but more like the war with the rich and then you had a white lotus season two you had um triangle of sadness you had a wave of films that truly addressed capitalism in a way that hadn't been done before and on top of it all just a great film with an amazing one of the best plot twists of our century if not the best one so it has everything 10 out of 10
1: yeah very very horrible <laughs> yeah it's great choice though i love it yeah
2: so, number three?
1: Uh, number three is my 1990s choice, and it is Mrs. Doubtfire. Of course. Classic. Because wig work. Yeah. Cross dressing. Yeah. <laughs> originality. Yeah. Emotional drama. It's yeah. all there.
2: It's got Brosnan.
1: It's got Brosnan. I'm going Brosnan. Bond
2: heavy on this episode, and I don't care. I need you'd
1: nice. like the fact Brosnan was in it. I love him. His it's,
2: hairy chest. Yeah. What, oh, a, what? Brosnan in the 80s and 90s. <clears> devilishly. How handsome, did they still
1: sell that film in? I mean, it's absolutely madness. And how did the film. That's so absurd. This, I mean, it could be a horror film <laughs> on paper. Mm. Yet it's this really emotional family love story. Really, but it's like completely bonkers. So yeah, I've picked it because I like the humor in it. I like the uh, the, the soundtrack's really fun with like Aerosmith and stuff. Yeah, and I really like the the kind of family emotional tale mm. it tells. You know, the ending. I always, when I was a kid, I used to find the ending really sad when Robin Williams is sort of not Mrs. Doubtfire and he's presenting his TV show. And the kids all gather to watch it in the lounge. And he tells this story about a kid whose parents aren't going to get back together. And it's kind of a metaphor for his home family life. And it's really deep. Incredible. And it's directed by Chris Columbus. Okay. Who's, you know, of Home Alone 1 and 2 yeah. fame. And just that was his kind of peak movie, I think. It was that yeah. kind of era. So yeah, very cool. Nice.
2: So my final one, and I'm sur- I'm 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 glad I've brought this now, because I'm the only one who brought who's brought an animated film. Is uh I think. And the reason I brought it is because I think it's my favorite Pixar film of all time. It is what Zack Snyder wishes his Watchmen (laughs) film was, is The Incredibles, right?
0: Right, okay. It's
2: a, it's, I mean, to go to just first of all, the soundtrack is incredible. It's like this amazing kind of like 60s jazzy kind of like, you know spy noir soundtrack it's so good the story's fantastic the casting is amazing you know the idea of the young you know the if if everybody can be when everybody's super no one is you know syndrome is the bad guy is so good you have those you know endlessly quotable scenes of frozone you know the where is my super suit which will probably follow samuel l jackson around along with all of his other catchphrases for his career but it's Now, it's not done justice by the second one. The second one is nowhere near as good, and it was always going to be difficult. But that first Incredibles film, I remember seeing it in the cinema and was blown away by it as like a 10-year-old. And it is the first, I have such a vivid memory. It is the first DVD that I ever went into a shop and I pre-ordered. Because I knew it was coming out. And I remember going in with like my 10 euros in hand being like, I'd like to pre-order the Incredibles, (laughs) please. Like them taking my name. And I think my mum's phone number. I mean, how much
1: more in advance did it mean you get the DVD? Oh, it meant I got it on the day.
2: Yeah, it meant I got it on the day, but I was guaranteed to get it on the day. You know, because I was so convinced. I was so convinced everyone was going to want to buy it that they'd sell out. So I wanted to pre-order. To be fair, yeah, it was huge. It's Brad Bird who went on. Who you know, who's done some other amazing films. He went on and did some of the Mission Impossible's. And yeah, I just, I fucking love it. I just, it's so good. It's so, it's such an entertaining film. And yeah, another one that's like endlessly quotable. And Mm. I think I could probably just listen to the soundtrack on repeat as well, as I say. It's just, it's so good. And as I've mentioned before, it's everything that Zack Schneider wanted Watchmen to be. Mm. You know, it's that story of like superheroes going into hiding and because, you know, society doesn't want them anymore. And then being brought back out by this supervillain who is trying to convince everyone that he's saving the world, but actually he's the one causing all the destruction. You know.
0: I'm annoyed. I don't remember it very well. I need to rewatch oh,
2: it. Oh my God. Trust me. It is it is worth it. I've a not re-watch. seen it. Oh, dude. It's so... Watch it with watch it with your daughter. It's incredible. It's so... It's incredible. Though. Oh, <laughs> see what I did there? Stop. Oh, that's so But yeah, cool. that's my third one. So okay. I've got The Incredibles, Casino Royale, and What We Do in the Shadows. Cool. So if he's brought...
0: Parasite 2001 and Fight Club. And
1: I've got uh, Death of Stalin, Rocky Horror Picture Show and Mrs. Doubtfire. Nice. So the next time we do this
2: feature, this is when it's going to get interesting because one of us is going to try and replace one of the other's films. So that's Mm -hmm. where it's going to get, as you say, Simon, your list of I, I mean cross-dressing is going to be a hard one to get to, uh, to, <laughs> yeah, to it's try and not unfair. get Rocky Horror but we'll see and that'll be something that we can uh, yeah we can get the listeners involved with so that'll be an interesting one to come back to that is cool. so
0: interesting do, do we want them to have a first vote in the meantime or not yet
2: I don't think so just go okay. and try and watch all those films that, that's Do a, true do a, a like a Lord of the Rings style marathon and watching all nine films if you can
0: that's true if you're listening you have homework
2: oh, look a message from our sponsor G.I.
1: Jane 2 can't wait to see it now yo hold my food. What's
2: up? Got a
0: so we jump right into our final scene
1: yeah yeah let's do it
0: okay did we tell people we're gonna do reservoir dogs last time
1: yep i, I think, think we so. did yeah. Okay. And, yeah
0: cool i mean i feel like this film needs no introduction it's uh... well, it did for
1: me because i'd never seen it what? so really? I, I i needed an introduction and and d- so like have you seen much tarantino Yeah, fair bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting um, that you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs.
0: Had you heard of the film before?
1: Yeah, I knew it was quite violent, Mm. and I think, (laughs) I think my bit of an understatement. I think because my mum was quite anti-violent films that that was very like it was kind of like I think I can't remember how old I was when it came out. I was quite young, and it was like a a early nineties, wasn't it? I think yeah nineteen ninety two. Yeah, Yeah, I was like under ten, so it was like definitely shouldn't have been watching. this, for sure.
0: (laughs) Well, oddly, it's his least violent film.
1: Well, uh,
2: I don't
0: yes. know when the, guy 1, gets his ear, when the guy
1: gets
2: his ear cut off that's pretty graphic that's, but that's pretty it horrible.
0: that's it I mean if you th- if you think of Kill Bill 1 Django dude there's like people getting in, shot in Glorious in shot. Inglorious Bastards like, every single yeah. film of his is
1: I can't watch the scalping in Glorious no. Bastards no. I always squint my eyes
0: maybe it's up there with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood but I feel like the shootout Of Once Upon a Time was pretty brutal. You also had
2: Tim Roth bleeding out for the entire film.
0: Yeah, but it didn't feel vile in a way. Didn't it was like okay. No,
2: well, and I'll I'll get onto that. Don't you worry. I'll get onto that. I'll get onto that soon when my takes on this film. Mm. That's not to say I don't love this film because I do. Like I really, really think it's one of my favorite Tarantino films. I actually did it as a one act drama play as like a teenager, which we definitely shouldn't have been doing. But yeah, I definitely have, I have issues with it for sure. Okay. Yeah.
0: Cool. I mean, I feel feel like a lot of people think or see Reservoir Dogs as their favorite Tarantino film. So I would like to get to that. But briefly, I mean, we know the cast, Harvey, I mean, Harvey Keitel. I mean, come on. Like he was the most experienced actor Right. coming into the play even Wait. more
2: than steve buscemi was he was starting yeah no, he was yes. super He was young. still quite early in his career buscemi right. i'd say yeah
0: i think i tell was that his uh, his peak career at right. the time and if anything he was the one that read the script and came on to produce because he loved the script so much so we wouldn't have the film if it wasn't for harvey so kudos to harvey
2: I, uh, yeah okay yeah
0: oh uh, you have thoughts
2: uh, so I mean, I mean, it gets kind of into my main thought in this film. There you go. I, I, so I, I love this film, but there is nothing in either Harvey Keitel or Tim Roth's performances in this film that justify the way their two characters act to one another. It is, it is, their relationship is so bizarre and yeah. unwarranted from what we see that actually, there's a lot of it I just can't get on board with because especially that opening scene where they're in the car together. So, so if, you, if you play the clip that, uh, that I've got, so I've got a clip from the first scene where they're all sitting around the dining table, they're at the diner. And this is where we get our kind of first intro to Kaitel and to Tim Roth. Give me that fucking thing. You know, what the hell do you think you are doing? you me my book. I'm sick of fucking hearing it, you. I'll give it back to you when we leave.
0: What do you mean when we leave? Give me it back now. For the past 15 minutes now, you've been droning on about names, Toby. Toby, Toby, Toby Wong, Toby Wong. I really thought he was Toby going to do Toby Wong,
1: Wong Kenobi, Jake. Chung, then. <laughs> fucking Charlie
0: Chan. We got Madonna's big dick coming out of my left ear, and Toby the
1: Jap, I don't know what, coming out of my right. Give me that book.
0: Are you going to put it away? I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want with it. Well, then I'm afraid I'm going to have to keep it. Hey, Joe. Want me to shoot this guy? Shit. You shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize.
2: (laughs) So that line, you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize, is the only believable line he says in that entire film. But if you watch that and you watch the way Tarantino has obviously positioned Roth beside Tim Roth beside him, he is sitting there. Well, first of all, the suit looks too big for him, and that's probably an intention that he looks out of place. But he's like kind of like he's he looks like a little brother beside him, but and you think, okay, we're going to get something here. There'll be something that shows why these two are close. And then we get into the next scene where he's like caring for him after he's been shot. And he's, you know, what we're led to believe, Harvey Keitel is this incredibly experienced guy. Like this is not his first diamond heist. And yet a lot of the stuff he does with giving Tim Ross character his name, you know, his argument with Steve Buscemi's character, Mr. Pink, who who is the only one acting in, as he calls it, a professional way, just doesn't make sense. I, like, and you get these flashbacks to him meeting Joe, and then you get Tim Ross flashbacks to him infiltrating the gang. I don't find at any point there is a justification to that relationship, which feels bizarre.
0: I, I agree with you in the sense that this is one of the reasons I have slight issues with the ending, yeah. And why um, Mr. White mm. does what he does for Mr. Orange. Yeah, Going back to what you said, I don't think the relationship has been built up in a way that justifies why would White kill his friends. Yeah. To Why save? would he portray yeah.
2: Joe who he's supposedly known for years? Yeah. He's known Joe for years and years and years. He's known Mr. Orange for a couple of days. I understand that people will say, well, he feels guilty because he thinks that, because he mentions it at some point, like, oh, the reason he got shot is because of me. But but the issue I always had with it was that on paper, you have this guy who was supposed to be this calm, like he's supposed to be like Winston Wolfe, mm-hmm. the character he plays in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. The kind of calm, calculated, he knows everything that is going on, but at no point does Cartel feel in control. He should be the one in control, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. He doesn't feel like there's any level of You know, I know what's going on. I know what to do, blah, 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 blah. And his dialogue's really stilted as well. And maybe that's just how it's written and it's Tarantino is is his first film. But I don't know. So what did you you make of it? If you hadn't seen it before, obviously this is like my second or third time seeing it. What did you think having not seen it before?
1: I didn't really like it. Yeah. I didn't think the violence was justified in it. It wasn't really earned Mm. because the characters were so irredeemably awful. I couldn't really get on board with any of it. I couldn't, I was not rooting for anyone.
0: Hmm. Willie really, are rooted for Mr. Orange, but maybe the, because I love Ralph so much. Um, I, I, I think ultimately it is an impressive debut because we have to remember that this is his very first film, Tarantino's first film. So there are so many things that are going like, that just incredible about this film. And he only had, I don't know, like less than 2 million to make this film. Mm. So,
1: it so felt like a, watching a play. I think as a right. play, it would work so well. So that's
2: a, so 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 when I did it as like an Amdram thing when I was like 16, we just did the scenes in the warehouse because actually they're the ones with like the most substance. And it's, they, you know, it's, I feel like the thing that's always associated with Reservoir Dogs, it's the movie about a diamond heist where you never see the diamond heist. Mm. Right. And actually so much of that background, you just don't need to see. You actually could do the whole film within the warehouse and not, have to see some of these i mean like steve buscemi's only shot is him get is him sprinting down
1: yeah. i felt like the cutaways to the you know what happened at the heist or at the end of the heist quite relief like relief it was like oh some like respite of like this the heaviness of these scenes i see i see like, what, I see what you mean
2: i see what you mean but the only one that i think that gives even a little bit of justifiable background is mr blonde's one where you see him you know talking with Eddie and Joe as he's gotten out of prison. Mm-hmm. That gives you a little bit of a, that really plays in and shows you why when, you know, Joe talks about like, what so is this guy who came out of prison, who we know has done prison time for like, you know, um, <clears throat> what is it, whatever it is, he took the fall for Joe and Eddie. Mm. It, he's like, of course he wouldn't fucking, do, you're like you're telling me that the guy who did this would fucking betray me to the police? Are you joking me? Mm-hmm. That's fine. But I don't think in either of the, you know, we get some stuff to throw away comments in other people's scenes. So in Tim Roths, he talks about hearing where Mr. White is from or he's from like Wisconsin or something like that. And him being like, oh, you got to go through and look at all the mugshots of people in Wisconsin. Yeah, But there's nothing that actually justifies the way the characters end, which obviously with those two we're assuming is, I mean, the way I see it is, is white shoots him in the head and then white gets blown away is the way I kind of, Mm -hmm. but obviously it kind of fades to black. I think the first gunshot is white. I don't even know. I don't even think that's debatable.
0: We're going to get to that. Um, I think, I I wish we had a couple more relationship building scenes with them too. And take out, Roth's past, because I felt like those scenes didn't work at all. Like those vignettes of like him. Yes, yeah, th- I agree for sure. It, it took me out of the film completely. It's like, what am I watching? Because when you look at other Tarantino films, when he's involved as a director, the vignettes, like the like those throwbacks, have a massive payoff every single time. But I get like that was his show. I get that, but I just I wish, yeah, we would have those out of the way and we just have like. To your point, um, Ben, a justification as to why he almost was indebted to, he's committed to- We don't know why. Yeah, to getting him, to keeping him alive and making sure that he's okay. So we can get to that. Um, But Simon, I know you also brought a uh, a scene for, you want to talk about?
1: Yes, I brought the scene where, which is Mr. White, Harvey Keitel and Steve Buscemi, Mr. Pink, Um, kind of arguing together. Mm -hmm. But I actually bought it for probably the reason, not a reason that you guys are thinking of. It's because in this scene, Steve Buscemi trips over his words and that's what added to the vibe that it was like this kind of play slash Mm -hmm. opera. It's almost
2: done in one take. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. And I really like the rawness of it. But see what you guys think. Listen to Steve Buscemi try and get his lines out. He sort of stumbles first time, then he really stumbles the second time. The
0: cops did not show up after the alarm went off. The cops didn't show up until after Mr. Blunt started shooting everybody. As soon as I heard the alarm, I saw the no, cops. No, man, no, I'm telling you, it wasn't that soon, okay? They didn't, they didn't let their presence be known until after Mr. Blonde became a madman, all right? I'm not saying they weren't there. I'm saying they were there. But they didn't make a move until after, after Mr. Blonde started shooting everybody.
1: You could read that as it, it's because it's he's it's very intense. He can't think straight. But mm. to me, it just seemed like a bit of a stumble. Like yeah, a they probably
0: didn't have the budget to first, do another take. Yeah, tape. they ran
1: out of film and stock or it's something. it's difficult dialogue to get out Yeah, well. yeah. Like, yeah. You try, like, try writing that down and
2: saying it back to yourself. It's Like, <clears throat> it's interesting because Tarantino is someone who probably prides himself on his dialogue. Like, you know, he has, he, like, almost West Wing- you know, mm-hmm. you know the, like the way the West Wing is famous for all its walking shots. Tarantino's really famous for his like quick back and forth and kind of conversations like that. But he's, he, he feels really raw. You can see, and it's funny because if you then compare that to like Pulp Fiction, which mm-hmm. is what, two or three years later, you can see in that time maybe how much Tarantino learned from Reservoir Dogs in how to write and how to direct these scenes. And then especially with Pulp Fiction, how to piece that stuff together.
1: Yeah, my hot take, as you guys would say with Tarantino, is that he resorts too quickly to extreme violence to make emotional impact in the films. Like yeah. I, I remember watching Django Unchained, which I think is an amazing film, but that's oh, the yeah. one with the Mandingo fighting, right? Yeah. And I was like so disgusted by that. And I couldn't yeah. watch it. And I was like squirming on my seat. And I'm sure that's what he wanted. But I just don't think a lot of the violence in these films is warranted. And I feel like he's he's desensitizing everyone with this violence. Because once you've seen that stuff, you can't unsee it. And say that, you know, you, your kind of violence threshold goes up every time you watch these films, which is why I'm quite careful with what, what I try and watch. You know what I mean? I, I'm, yeah. I'm quite mindful of it. Because once you've seen this stuff, it's like, becomes nothing.
2: Well, he's, I mean, Tarantino is the director who's constantly pulled into those conversations, isn't he? Mm-hmm. What I mean, conversations? There's that, there's, it was a Krishnan... Oh, the going, Krishna Guru from 4 Yeah, News, like yeah. he's Tarantino is constantly pulled into these conversations around violence and, and kind of desensitizing yeah. people because I know it's exciting. He uses, and, it, as, yeah. he uses it as a tool. shocking, yeah, mm. yeah.
0: But I don't think he, I don't think he, he created that genre or like that like that way of making films. If anything, Tarantino is the only auteur out there who's still alive. Who actually doesn't have? And I'm I'm not saying that as a like I'm not trying, like this is almost like a compliment. I don't think he has an original vision. Obviously, there are original things that make a Tarantino film, but ultimately he is the biggest movie cinema buff of all time, and all he does is paying tribute. Mm. To to yeah. the to his favorite decades that is sixties that is forties that is twenties and basically a bunch, of, a bunch of westerns and a bunch of black films you know from the forties. And all of those films, especially the Westerns, have extreme violence. Really? Uh, oh my God, think of all the Cliff... Uh, not
1: Cliff John Wayne. You know. Clint
0: Eastwood. John, John Wayne, yeah, Clint Eastwood films and how much violence they have. For no justification but, whatsoever. But is, but is it the type of Spaghetti violence that
1: feels... Because Tarantino does violence in a very real, visceral way. Is, yeah. is this Is the Western violence not a bit more sort of cartoonified a bit more wooden a bit more of like course, yeah, he's, yeah he's
0: bringing that uh what do you like it's more stylized his way this of more making films
1: and more subversive and it's yeah it's darker his
0: West, the westerns are pretty sadistic okay. but what they did to not yeah, to native uh, i mean it's pretty yeah. dark and very racist yeah so i don't like i get what i think it's a type of film it's like do you like horror films or not like the, yeah. the violence in horror films
1: like yeah, it's i, soul films. A, yeah. I watched just, this on, just on face value and i guess if i if i knew more about the western tradition and stuff then it would probably make more sense he's to paying
0: me. tribute to a lot of that um yeah to, to that era and type of storytelling i'm not saying that's my type of no storytelling necessarily, but I agree with, I think Django is well, actually is one of my favorite films of all time. It's incredible, yeah. But the reason it works is because it has that emotional impact and it has a story and it's actually social critique into, mm-hmm. you know, what happened back then. But... Um,
2: For all the things that people kind of criticize him on with his violence, from Reservoir Dogs and his his filmography in general, the Stuck in the Middle with you scene with Michael Madsen and the police officer is probably his most... Well-known scene, or at least his like the one that sticks in popular culture the most. I mean, everybody talks about Tarantino's use of music and stuff. That's the that's that's it's the juxt- epitome so, of that. It's
1: simple juxtaposition, isn't it? It's like yeah. have something really dark happening in the picture yeah. and have some really yeah. happy music play. Mm.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. And yeah. also, that's why I go back to. I think personally, I think apart from Buscemi, I think Madsen's performance is the most believable one in the film.
0: It's the best. Yeah, it's, you know, Madsen's yeah.
2: not necessarily, Michael Madsen's not by far and away not the greatest actor in the world, but exactly. as Mr. Blonde, he's fantastic.
0: I love him. I love him in this but, film.
2: You know, I I do wonder would the cutting of the ear scene again be more justified if we had seen more of the Diamond Heist? Because we're constantly told throughout that, oh well, the reason it all went crazy is because Mr. Blonde starts shooting a lot of people, mm. which we yeah. never see.
0: Well, in we never a, even
2: see his getaway. We, right. He just arrives. He arrives there with a the policeman in the trunk. Right. The only ones we actually see getting away from the diamond heist are pink, white, and uh, white and orange.
0: Well, in in a Tarantino interview, I heard that the main reason, obviously, that that he didn't show the heist was because of budget. Yeah. But another big reason, as like as Tarantino said, is well, I wanted the audience to try to get what actually happened through the different perspectives. And I actually feel like it works because we have a bunch of unreliable narrators. And I think that's quite interesting, even though I don't think many people argue that Matson's character is a psycho from what has happened. No,
2: I don't think this. I don't, I'd be, it, trust me, if you have an argument as to why he's not, please God, let me know. But <laughs> I don't really think there is any argument to how he couldn't be one of the kind of most sadistic characters Tarantino's probably ever written. For sure. Because he is just a plain old psychopath. I mean, funny considering his brother's so much more chill than Mm -hmm, Pulp Fiction. mm -hmm. You know, Vincent Vick are two very different people.
0: Yeah. Okay, so to move on to the actual final scene, and I know Simon had been preparing this incredible edit for us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm just going to... read uh, the, the plot here just to get to the... Because I think the scene that I picked kind of skips to the very f- final few seconds. So as a severely wounded white cradles the dying orange in his arms, orange confesses that he's a police officer. We need to talk about that. I know, Ben, you have thoughts about it. Yeah. Feeling betrayed and guilty of having killed his accomplices and for having confided in the needs he thought was a friend, White presses his gun to Orange's head, but is still conflicted on whether to pull the trigger or not. This is where I have the scene that I feel like you could play because this is heavy grunting work from Harvey Keitel.
2: Yeah, we should add a category of grunt work. (laughs) (laughs) Close your
1: eyes. (laughs) Some some license was taken there, but yeah, it is very grunting. It's
0: so interesting to unpack that grunting because what is he thinking right now? He's thinking I just killed two friends Mm. that I shouldn't have for a snitch, pretty much. I'm also thinking he's also thinking, oh, I'm going to get caught. I'm going to die. What is he also thinking at this moment? Why, why he, is he having grunting?
2: I think he's just thinking, "I'm dead already."
0: I'm dead already.
2: I don't think he's thinking, "I'm going to like, oh, I'm going to get caught or anything like that." He's like, "I'm, I'm dead. dead already." What do I do next? Yeah, but I, that's why I think that, like, what's again, what's really like contradictory about again, Cai'tel's character is that you know someone like the him who's had a long career in 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 the business of like robbing banks and robbing people and in crime feels like they wouldn't have a little bit more of an idea about what they're doing in that scenario and have come to terms with things a little bit better. And yeah. actually, he's just made so many mistakes in the last 20 minutes of the film for then at all to just kind of be like, I'm a cop. And you're like, oh, for f-. he's probably like, oh, for fuck's sake.
0: Which is why I have a feeling there's a bit of a betrayal happening, yeah, right? 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah,
2: well, I mean, and it's hard to believe that because we don't really see why there's... This again goes back to my yeah. point. We don't really see why they're that close and I don't think there's anything... Like there's not enough nuance in either of those actors' performances in the film to to hint towards why there is that. You don't really connect to any of them. I think maybe Tarantino wants you to try and connect to that relationship between White and Roth as or White and and, and Orange as a you know a younger and older mentor kind of relationship. But I I don't think the film gives enough to justify that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My read was that because they've all been thrown together and they don't even know each other's names. That's why there's so much mistrust. And that's why there's so yeah, much suspicion they, you right. know, they're back at the safe house. Has the safe house been rumbled? Is there a snitch? So it makes sense that they wouldn't trust each other. But it still doesn't help me have any more connection to the characters. For sure.
0: We then move to the actual shootout.
1: <laughs> Face! Drop the fucking gun, buddy! No! Put the gun down! Don't do it! Drop the gun, man! Don't <laughs> drop the gun! God, I'm gonna fucking you away!
0: And that's pretty much the end of the film. However, when I went down the Reddit rabbit hole, because I had to, and maybe because I actually grabbed that you know, snippet from YouTube, maybe there are like a few more seconds in the end. Someone on Reddit claimed that the reason Mr. Pink actually gets, um, doesn't die because when you hear the shootout, there are cops inside the warehouse and there are cops outside of the warehouse. I mean, from the sound design point of view. But apparently, if you turn up the volume, you can hear Busemi saying, Go, damn it, I've been so, uh, or like uh, stop it, stop it, I've been so, go, damn it, something like that. So he's not actually dead. And he actually, I um, don't, don't want to say get away, but he's not actually. Dead, dead. I read in some- the Tarantino style.
1: I read someone saying that you can hear his car trying to be started outside. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Has Tarantino ever addressed it?
0: Yes. Tarantino claims he lived.
2: Okay. I mean, that's what I always thought. I always took it as he just got away. i have never actually I've never tried to listen for anything in it because in my head, Bashemi's character from the outset has been like, We need to leave. Like we did, staying around here is a fucking stupid idea. We need to get out of here. And he's the only mm. one with some common sense. He, <clears throat> throughout the whole thing, he's the only one for me who had any like, as much common sense as you can have when you rob diamonds for a living.
1: If you can imagine this was a play and you compare it to something like Inspector Calls or something, mm. there's no like moral take. There's no moral takeaway. There's no like the, there's no reason for these diamonds to mean anything. Like it's like it's missing a layer for me. No. It's like, I agree, it's like yeah. we're just in this world of chaos and it's reasonably interesting and exciting, and there's a torture scene, which is very shocking, but there's no, it needs another layer to like hook me in emotionally to it.
2: And that's what I mean. I think what we're missing in, in some, as you said, Sophie, like, some, you know, if you swap Tim Roth's scenes for some additional ones between the group in earlier, you know, before the robbery or whatever it is, because all we get of them together is. The diner scene at the start, which is just a completely abstract scene in which all Tarant- Tarantino wants to do is get away his weird theories about like a virgin,
0: Right.
1: which, you know. And the tipping conversation with Buscemi. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I want to get to that because I actually, like going back to what you said, Ben, I do think the moral tale, if there is one, is that if you're practical and you look after yourself, you're most likely to survive. And I think this is why Buscemi's character survives. And I mean, from from what I heard, he survives, but he is actually caught by the cops, so he doesn't actually get away.
1: Mm. But yeah, ultimately, yeah, same. But yeah.
0: ultimately, that's better than being dead. Yeah. Ultimately, just yeah. But um, I actually, uh, I wish I had the clip. Maybe we can find it in post production. I found a clip from Busemi claiming that his take on the character is that he had an ironic fate because in Pulp Fiction, Buscemi is playing a waiter. Oh yeah! So it was almost like a, you know the Tarantino universe <laughs> where Mussemi comes back as a waiter after that scene where he claimed that hey tipping is you know the, well I, I mean tip. it's all
2: yeah it's all the same unit maybe he's on parole I mean because sure. uh, as I say like John Travolta's char- sa- John Travolta's character in Pulp Fiction mm. is Michael Madsen's brother so it's all supposed to be set in ah, the same right. world I didn't exactly, exactly yeah so, so he's he's Vic Vega right and okay. in um, Pulp Fiction well, that makes sense John Travolta's exactly Vega. so he's yeah.
0: like yeah I'm actually like on parole yeah. in Pulp Fiction.
2: <laughs> Yeah. Which is great. I mean, yeah. I like the fact that those two films connect together. It gives mm-hmm. it a little bit more depth.
0: Yeah, according to Bisami. Yeah. So in that way, I I like yeah, I like that a very nihilistic take because it shows that you shouldn't look out for, you know, your well, I mean
2: it's like dog doggy dog, I guess, as <laughs> as as, as the um yeah, as the as the title would suggest. And it's mm-hmm. it's kind of every man for himself. Yeah. Unless you're Mr. White and Mr. Orange, in which it's me and you together forever, buddy. <laughs> but you've betrayed me and I fucking hate you and I'm going to blow your brains out. Oh, yeah. you dick. Yeah. You know, um, there's a lot of, uh, I will say last thing on performances because I feel like I've been banging this drum, but there's a lot of overacting in it as well.
0: I think it's meant to be though. We're also talking like early 90s, like that film. It's, it
2: is, it's like, it's very.
0: It came out with Basic yeah, and maybe, and, and, yeah, yeah, maybe
2: that's, maybe that's the whole point, but maybe that's what he's trying Basic to do, but it Instincts all feels stylized. Lo- stylized overacted.
1: Though more like it suits it no, um, yeah i mean in terms hand. of overacting but as yeah. you say okay. it, like
2: yeah. a, almost like a play simon in which like a play you know theater i want i won a best actor award as a 16 year old for instance what you, who did you play i played mr white
1: all right that's so cool. but see that's why i said
2: that's why i say because i think it's different because when i did it i hadn't seen the film and when i read mm. when i read the script that we had which was just the indoor scenes in, in the warehouse the way i always took it was is that mr white is someone who should be completely in control for all of it and then when it gets to the end of it, it's like that it is the ultimate betrayal. Like, you know, I, I of because as someone who's led that life of crime in amongst all these people to make you kill your this person that you've worked with for so long and his son. Right. And get get you shot as well. Um, feels like, you know, yeah, he, you know, if he did survive, it would never happen again because he'd never let his guard down again. But he does. He to me, it always feels like he lacks that sense of control and composure that mm-hmm. he should have. I think if you read it rather than watching it, read it as a as a novel or as like a script. I think his dialogue makes it feel like he should have more control than Kaitel's performance actually gives it.
0: Yeah, I think we all the ending again, I will say though. I know uh, I feel like we were very harsh on the film because to remember, like again, his first film of a director who came to create something quite. Mm compelling, like the non-linear, non-linear, linear as word? were, mm. uh, storytelling, like all, all, also directing all these actors in one single setting is, I'm assuming it's just incredibly hard. So it has its fo- It has its faults, but it's a great debut. That's overall. the thing,
2: like I'm highly critical of it, but I still love it as a film. Yeah. I still really enjoy it. I think this, again, like I feel like I, you and I possibly always harp on about music and films, but the soundtrack's incredible. Yeah. That opening scene with, again, with Little Green Bag, is so good. Mm-hmm. Like it's so. It's like that. Uh, that opening scene. Well, not opening scene, but that bit after the opening with little green bag where they're walking across the car park. They're all in the suits. They're all in the Ray Bans. It is so effortlessly cool. Like people still dress up as Reservoir Dogs characters yeah. to these days. Yeah, because so it's it
1: almost glamorized um, being a gangster. Yes. Yeah. Right?
2: <laughs> yeah, in the same way that stuff like Goodfellas and all yeah. did. Like Tarantino did it in in a
1: in a.
0: There's nothing glamorous a, about that film, though.
1: No, but there are I think a bunch of he, no, but but the look, in, in the 90s, though, you could probably watch that and feel cool for watching. Yeah, it. I, think so, I think he, yeah,
2: I think he glamorizes it in like a kind of a dirtier way. In the same way that I was saying about Casino Royale, Casino Royale mm. took Bond and made it a grittier thing. He kind of glamorized that. Well, what, what about film? Lock,
1: Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels? That was a similar, yeah, idea. An English take. Yeah, same mm. sort of thing. Glamorizing violence, adding a bit more humor in it. Yeah, gritty, yeah. very violent.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Maybe giving Tarantino way too much credit. I just thought he meant to show them as a bunch of racist, misogynistic losers. I don't think he was mm. trying to glamorize that. I think he was trying to be sarcastic. But maybe that's my take on it.
2: I think it's more so, but a, 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 like a look and feel, right? Rather yeah, than yeah. Those I meant aesthetically, more. Than uh, yeah, aesthetically, yeah. like it's the suits, the glasses, the music. You know, it's it's a for very, a moment
1: like, it was glamorous, yeah. But obviously, just for a moment until it all goes to shit,
2: yeah. It's a very, like, machismo kind of, right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, um, way of directing these. Ma- like, that whole shot, like, is just, it's supposed to be cool. Like, it, that's kind of what it is supposed to be. And then it lures you into a false sense of security, because then it goes into complete chaos, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. goes from these guys so coolly, calmly walking, like, oh, we're, grand. Like, we're cool, we're bank robbers, we're going to go steal these diamonds, everything's great, to immediately Tim Roth bleeding out in the back of a car. Yeah. Like it lures you into a false sense of security Mm -hmm. and then you're kind of you're in it now Mm -hmm. and it's just going.
0: Cool. Okay. That's a wrap. Very proud of like I think we really dive deep into it. Yeah. It's good
2: that we can like take longer. I think this kind of new format's working better that we can actually devote more time to these endings.
0: Awesome. Okay. We will be back in a couple of weeks with general movie chat and tell you what you need to be watching next. Hopefully not a Marvel plaque for Simon, for the sake of Simon.
2: <laughs> no, but the Marvels is coming out this weekend. But, yeah,
0: whoop, that, whoop. that is true. That
2: is true. <laughs>
0: Simon, do <laughs> you know his. what?
2: One of these days, Simon, I promise I'll do an episode where I don't mention Marvel. <laughs> I can't promise I'll never mention Bond. I couldn't do that. New Year's okay. resolution.
0: Yeah, New Year's resolution. We can hope. Okay. Alrighty. Okay. If you listen this far, you know what to do. Please share with your friends, your Tarantino fans uh, in your group chat. And, yeah, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye.
1: See ya. Bye.
2: Did you like it? Did you like that? Did I like it? I loved it.
0: I, I had no idea you could milk a cat.
2: I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Good morning.
0: Morning. Good morning.
2: Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.